Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there was a time when those on the liberal side of the equation, politically speaking, were suspicious of the FBI. It had had this um, history during the 1960s of running an intelligence program against anti-war people, a program called COINTELPRO, tracking them, tapping them, taping Martin Luther King's phone calls, calling up Martin Luther King, an FBI agent calling up Martin Luther King, suggesting that he kill himself because he's been screwing around and the FBI has proof and they'll release it. That FBI. And, um, and yet a miraculous transformation happened. Long about 2016, a fellow by the name of Donald Trump started wailing on the FBI. And all of a sudden, you, you couldn't think more highly of the FBI if you were Ronald Reagan. They were the goodest of the good guys. This was the week it all came tumbling down. No thanks to Donald Trump or Ronald Reagan. More about that coming up. Hello, welcome to the show. We're alone, may I tell you. I've been feeling very strange. Either something's in the air or else a change is happening in me. I think I know the cause. I hope I know the cause. From everything I've heard, there's only one cause it can be. Love, I hear, makes you smile a lot. Also love, I hear. Leaves you weak Love I hear Makes you blush And turns you ashen You try to speak With passion And squeak I hear Love they say Makes you pine away But you pine away With an idiotic grin I find, I blush, I squeak, I squawk Today I woke, too weak to walk What's love I hear, I feel, I fear I'm in With an idiotic grin I'm dazed 
before I've never felt so well before What's love I hear, I feel, I fear I know I am, I'm sure, I mean I hope, I trust, I pray I must be Forgive me if I shout Forgive me if I crow I've only just found out And well, I thought you ought to know From the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. The good news, yes, there's good news. You know, there's going to be the uh, Winter Olympics coming up right away next February in Beijing, China. Uh, This week, they announced their slogan for the Winter Olympics. Did the Chinese, quote, together for a shared future, unquote. To be fair, it sounds better in Mandarin. And now... News of Bad Banks. Bad bank. Well, there's no bigger bank than the World Bank, I guess. Maybe the baddest. Maybe not. Anyway, a report has found that Kristalina Georgieva, former chief executive of the World Bank directed staff to alter data to placate China. She's now at the International Monetary Fund. I guess that's her punishment. The findings in the investigation, conducted by a law firm at the request of the bank's ethics committee, who knew, raised questions about the judgment of Ms. Georgieva, says the New York Times, during her time at the World Bank, underscored the pressure the bank is under to accommodate its third largest shareholder. China. The investigation focused on accusations top bank officials pressured the team that conducts the Doing Business survey every year, pressured them to inflate China's standing in its 2018 report. There are also accusations that the 2020 report, the Doing Business survey, two years later, was manipulated to artificially bolster the raking of Saudi Arabia. There's a whole lot of monkey business going on at the bank. Or was. The Doing Business Report assesses the business climate in countries around the world. Developing countries in particular care deeply about their rankings. They use them to lure foreign investment. We're number 17. Come on. At the time of the reported manipulation, World Bank officials were under pressure not to anger China. It was ranked 78th on the list of countries in 2017, was about to decline in the 2018 report. According to the investigation, the staff of Jim Young Kim, then the president of the bank, held meetings to find ways to improve China's ranking. Well, the food? Miss Georgieva also got involved, working with a top aide to develop a way to make China look better without affecting the rankings of other countries. Yes, there's a trick. Here's the thing. The investigation found she was directly involved with efforts to improve China's ranking and at one point chastised the bank's China director for mismanaging the bank's relationship with the country. In her statement, Ms. Georgieva denied 
accusations she'd acted inappropriately. A World Bank spokesman said the report spoke for itself. Silently, I guess. The bank said Thursday of this week it's discontinuing its annual doing business survey. So that should fix that. Now, everybody's number one. Now some news of our friend the Adam. Save too cheap to meet. Save cheap to cheap to meet. Cheap save to save to meet. Save save to save to meet. Well, here comes that old problem of what do you do with the nuclear waste? Private companies want federal approval to build an expensive nuclear waste site in Texas. But residents, state lawmakers, environmentalists, (laughs) environmentalists, and the governor of Texas are all against it. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission issued a license for interim storage partners to store as much as 5,000 metric tons of radioactive waste. One of two proposed storage sites, the other in southeastern New Mexico, under agency review for several years according to the Washington Post. It's, of course, a decades-long battle to find a home for 85,000 tons of nuclear waste accumulating at dozens of nuclear plants across the country. 85,000 tons is all. Fears about the dangers of the material, which scientists say remains hazardous to humans for, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Those fears have stifled plans to build repositories. As in Texas, where environmental activists have forged a rare alliance with oil interests and powerful state Republicans to prevent the site from moving forward. They worry that transporting and storing high-level nuclear wastes, including contaminated fuel rods, exposes the state to the threat of an incident or potential for groundwater contamination. Our concern is that the waste will sit there, the cement around it will crack, leaks will develop, and radioactive contamination will result, said the executive director of an Austin-based advocacy group. The governor of Texas, Governor Greg Abbott, signed legislation just last week preventing federally approved waste facilities from obtaining local construction and wastewater permits. The governor has framed the license as an unwelcome incursion by the Biden administration, he accused it of, quote, trying to dump highly radioactive waste, unquote, in Texas oil fields. He continued, quote, Texas will not become America's nuclear waste dumping ground, unquote. The idea of a temporary storage facility for nuclear waste came about after the Obama administration shut down the notion of a permanent storage facility in Yucca Mountain, Nevada, the then head of the Senate, the Democratic head of the Senate, was from Nevada and opposed that plan. The recommendations of the panel reporting to uh, President Obama in 2012 were, quote, consolidated interim storage facilities where spent fuel, unquote, where the spent fuel could be stored while a permanent repository was being developed. The Texas site would one of the, be one of those, would store nuclear waste for up to 40 years. See? Though there's no plan for what to do with the material after the 40 years expires. The company involved, Waste Control Specialists, 
said it would seek amendments to allow it to store as much as 40,000 metric tons of spent fuel, nearly half the country's current inventory, and it could seek approval to extend the license for longer than 40 years. Like, until we all forget about it, fall asleep. The proposed site in the oil-rich Permian Basin of Texas would be adjacent to an existing facility for low-level radioactive items such as contaminated gloves and medical tubes. That uh, license to accept low-level waste was approved in 2007 and 2008 despite opposition from local environmental groups. Engineers and geologists from the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality resigned over the issuance of those licenses because they considered that site geologically unfit for even radio, low-level radioactive waste disposal, according to local news reports at the time. There's a federal law that holds the federal government responsible for storing nuclear waste. Did you know? So the Energy Department makes annual payments to the companies that do the temporary storage. A few years ago, a Congressional Budget Office report said the department had already paid more than $5 billion to utility companies for storing waste and estimated such payments could eventually total $29 billion. Cheap, clean, too cheap to meter, our friend the atom. All right, it's one of those weeks where I have to mention the T-word, or as he's known now, the former guy. Uh, another Trump book has come out. I've, I'm kind of, my guilty pleasure is reading all of them, so you don't have to. But uh, the latest one got a, a, a boatload of attention, when CNN obtained an advanced copy. Gee, how did that happen? It um, It's by Bob Woodward, again, this time with Bob Costa, also a reporter for the Washington Post. The book is called Peril. It's a kind of a typical Bob Woodward book in, its, in which there are quotes, exact quotes, that you think, how, now how did he... How could he possibly? But there they are, in, inside quotation marks. It's a conversation between Donald Trump and his vice president, Mike Pence, the vice former guy, in early January, just before the uh, demonstration, riot, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, at the at the Capitol. And uh, Trump suggested that well, more than suggested that Mike Pence refused to certify the uh, Electoral College results when he presided over the Congress on January 6th. Pence responded that he tried everything to figure out a way to do that, done everything, he said, to find a way around this, but it was, quote, simply not possible. And, he added, I wouldn't want any one person to have that power. Trump replied, wouldn't it be almost cool to have that power? And when Pence continued, Pence had even asked Dan Quayle if there was any way for the vice president to stand in the way of the certification of the Electoral College results. Dan Quayle said potato. No, he said no. And then the former guy told Pence, well, then I don't want to be friends with you anymore. I picked the wrong man four years ago, unsupposedly. 
When I chose you for my running mate, I gave you such a gift. We were in like perfect sync until one day I sent a shift. The very time I need you most is when I know I'm stiffed. I don't wanna be your friend anymore. I don't wanna be your friend anymore. I get you into Mar-a-Lago at half the normal rate. Introduce you to my big time friends. Tell them that you're great. Then I need one solid. Not only am I not first class, but I'm freight. I don't want to be your friend anymore. I don't want to be your friend anymore. I don't want to be your friend anymore. Friendship is more special than the biggest precious jewel. It's a presidential suite with an infinity pool. It's the best. It's the greatest. It's really cool. It's like the hugest super yacht on the deep blue sea. That's what friendship means to me me if i saw you lying in the street i'd call 9111 if i saw you with a naked frankfurter i'd go get you a bun you saw them rob me blind you threw away your gun I don't want to be your friend anymore. Don't try to call me. I'll throw the phone on the floor. I don't want to be your friend anymore. I don't want to be your friend anymore. The COVID pandemic is rarely out of the news in the last year and a half or so, but it hit the front page at the end of the week when a panel at the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States did not, as it was expected to do, approve the idea of a vaccine booster for everybody. It did approve the notion of a vaccine booster for people over 65. So if you'll excuse me, ow! Um and for uh, people with compromised immune systems. It's uh, long enough into the pandemic that uh, books are starting to come out on the subject, and one that's just out, a fairly sprawling history of the pandemic and our reaction to it here in the States, 
is by Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He was head of the Food and Drug Administration for a couple of years, 2017 to 2019. He's at the American Enterprise Institute as a resident fellow for he's for he's a resident fellow and um, he's a member of the board of directors of one of the companies that makes the coronavirus vaccine Pfizer and he's with me today here on the show to talk to you thank you for doing this thanks for having me so um, uncontrolled spread is the name of the book uh, which Sounds kind of dire. Are we in a dire situation? Um, we, well, we are in a dire situation with respect to the impact that the pandemic's had on on the U.S. and the globe. And I think that we're in a precarious situation with respect to our overall posture um, going forward, whether or not we're adequately protected against uh, against a future pandemic. And the book really was an attempt to try to lay out how we can change our preparedness and our posture so that we're not so excessively vulnerable to these kinds of risks going forward. So you you uh, lay out some history here. Um, we had a couple of coronavirus attacks, SARS one and MERS, um, and we dealt with those, or we we successfully got through those. Uh, they didn't turn into pandemics. Was that just dumb luck? Um, it was by virtue of the nature of the viruses themselves. I mean, SARS. Uh, and MERS were very deadly, but not very contagious. It was direct human-human transmission was more difficult. You needed to have close contact. So most of the spread, or a lot of the spread, was within healthcare institutions, where healthcare workers um, predominantly got infected because they were in close contact with patients. And mm-hmm. so once we learned how to do better infection control and how to get people diagnosed adequately, we were able to control those infections. So we we caught a break insofar as they just weren't very contagious viruses. But we should have, um, it should have been a harbinger of future risk that we should have understood that the coronaviruses as a category of viruses were on the march and they were developing features that can make them more menacing to people. And that it was a matter of time before some variant came along that combined the sort of lethality um, or the pathogenicity of SARS or MERS with the easy spread of a virus like influenza. And that's in fact what SARS-CoV-2 was. It was a SARS-like virus that was able to spread much more efficiently between people. So how how do we understand our inability to see that coming? We were preoccupied with influenza as the pandemic risk, and I think we just couldn't get out of that paradigm. And there were various people who started to worry about coronaviruses. There was a group created inside CDC to focus on coronaviruses as a pathogen that had pandemic potential. But I think we weren't expansive enough in our thinking about these risks and we were just so focused our paradigm around pandemic preparedness was so so focused on flu that we were never really able to break out of that thinking and the way you would combat a flu pandemic is very different than the way you would uh, deal with a coronavirus pandemic so for example diagnostic testing wouldn't be as important in the setting of a flu pandemic because the incubation period is much shorter people are contagious for a much shorter period of time and they're typically contagious after symptoms uh, come on but in the setting of a coronavirus pandemic Diagnostic testing could be very important because the incubation period is longer, so you have a longer interval to intervene to prevent transmission, and people could be infectious even when they're asymptomatic, and they're maximally infectious before symptoms come on. So having a widely deployable diagnostic test becomes very important. So, you know, our planning never really allowed for that, the importance of diagnostic testing. That's just one example. What we really should have been focused on 
was the the category broadly of viruses that replicate through RNA and that are respiratory pathogens. The reason why we should be worried about viruses that replicate through RNA is because that gives them the potential to mutate quickly because they, by virtue of the fact that they replicate through RNA, you have more opportunity for mutations. And in a virus that spreads through respiratory droplets or aerosols has the potential to spread very widely, very quickly. And if you're taking that view, if that's your orientation, that's your governing framework, the universe of pathogens you worry about is much broader than influenza. Influenza certainly falls within that universe, but so do coronaviruses, so does Nipah virus. There's a lot of other pathogens that start to fall within that framework. As I understand the history that you're telling, it took us a long time to realize that this particular virus was prone to asymptomatic spread. Right. Uh, you know, there, there, there was a presumption that um, you know, and Dr. Fauci and others said this, there hasn't been an example where an epidemic has been instigated by asymptomatic transmission. And so there was a presumption early that this wasn't spreading that widely through asymptomatic transmission. We didn't we didn't detect that early enough to change our overall um, posture, our overall tenor of of our response. And part of the reason we didn't pick up the asymptomatic transmission was because we didn't have a diagnostic test. And so we we actually overestimated the role of contaminated surfaces, what we call fomites. We Early on, we thought there must be a lot of transmission from contaminated surfaces. And that's why we were all wiping down our groceries and getting recommendations to clean surfaces. And you saw people spraying in subway cars because what was happening was CDC was seeing situation settings where there would be, you know, 30 people infected coming out of some gathering, but there was no one who went into the gathering who was sick. And so and CDC had no capacity to test people. So they said, wow, 30 people got sick and no one was um, symptomatic. There must have been some contaminated surface that mm -hmm. they all came in contact with. Mm -hmm. But really what happened was there was someone who was infected and asymptomatic who ended up infecting that that those 30 people. So because we didn't have the test, we couldn't we couldn't really fully understand those patterns of spread. So we underestimated the role of asymptomatic transmission, overestimated the role of contaminated surfaces. So we were spraying when we should have been um, doing something else, uh, masking, I guess. Um, was the United States unique in not understanding the um, or not having a a, uh, a test? Uh, weren't other countries doing more in the in the in the matter of testing than we were and have been? That's right. Um, we were unique in our struggle to deploy a diagnostic test at scale. I mean, one of the things that South Korea did very effectively early in the epidemic and why they were able to get control over their initial outbreak um, while we weren't was that they were able to pivot very quickly to a widely deployable diagnostic test and use testing and tracing and tracking and quarantining sick, sick individuals as a way to control the initial cases. In the United States, we became heavy, heavily seeded with the virus by the time we had a widely deployable diagnostic test, there were literally hundreds of thousands of cases. We were already so heavily seated that we couldn't use testing and tracing as a way to contain the spread at that point. We had to we had to turn to population-wide mitigation. And even as we applied the population-wide mitigation, the absence of a diagnostic test that could be widely deployed forced us to apply the mitigation much more broadly across the country rather than target it to those regions that where the spread was was actually occurring. If you look back at the pandemic planning that had been put in place back in 2005 in preparation for a pandemic flu, it envisioned population-wide mitigation, 
but it never envisioned a national shutdown. What it envisioned was that you would have regional steps that you would take as the virus spread across the country, you would take actions on a regional basis to try to mitigate spread because the virus wasn't going to simultaneously, at least initially, wasn't going to simultaneously infect the whole country. It was going to spread in a regionalized fashion as flu epidemics each year do. They start off in one part of the country and then Mm -hmm. they eventually become confluent. Um, But in this case, we didn't have a diagnostic test that we could deploy to actually target our intervention. So the the inability to field diagnostic early on really was at the root of a lot of our early challenges. Are we testing enough now? We have enough testing uh, available now. I mean, we finally reached a steady state where there is enough testing available to keep up with um, the epidemic in the U.S. And, you know, what's good about our current posture is we have different kinds of testing platforms that are deployed. We have the PCR-based tests, which are widely accessible. We have a lot of at-home tests and antigen-based tests that people can use at home. There's still spot shortages of testing. There's still um, shortages of the tests that people prefer, but there's a, a ample testing in the marketplace. And you know, we're not even tracking all the testing that's going on because a lot of the testing is taking place using point-of-care-based diagnostics that don't necessarily get reported. So, mm-hmm. you know, we might say we're we're doing X number of tests, but it's probably like, a you know, 10X what's actually being done once you factor in all the point-of-care diagnostics. Uh, um, my wife just returned from England where people are on the street passing out at-home tests. Uh, for free and um, uh, my first reaction is (laughs) as an American how would you trust those people but uh, apparently the Brits see things differently so their their National Health Service has has deployed people uh, on the streets of London and other cities actually passing out uh, the at-home tests Um, is 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 that something that we just were unable to do because of the way we're structured? Well, um, that's something we should have done. I mean, we should have made testing the test much more available to consumers and should have subsidized the purchase of tests for people who you know couldn't afford tests. I think if we made at-home tests much more widely accessible to people and um, and helped subsidize. Uh, the acquisition of tests, we would be in a better position. We would be getting more people diagnosed. We'd be making testing sort of a routine part of life. You don't feel well, you're exposed to someone, you should test yourself on a serial basis. So in that regard, we still don't have enough testing. I mean, we don't have enough of the tests we need to do that. Um, and from a public health standpoint, I think that could be highly effective. Now, you know, you look at the tests, they're not exorbitant. You can buy the Binax now, two tests for $25, but that's still expensive enough that it's out of reach of many people mm-hmm. to either acquire it or certainly use it on a serial basis. And so that's where the government could come in and help subsidize the acquisition of tests for people who are insured under Medicaid or Medicare. Uh, and it's something we should have done. But but at this point, um, we don't necessarily have the supply to really enable that kind of uh, broad access. One of the things I'm struck by in reading your book is... Um history doesn't uh, repeat itself but it rhymes i'm i'm seeing this rivalry that you uh sketch out between the cdc and the fda and i'm thinking of oh there was siloing going on before 9-11 but one agency wasn't talking to the other is that the kind of situation we had was this a siloing problem was this a turf problem what was the problem between the cdc and the fda or what is the problem 
Yeah, I um, the early problem. There, there's different problems at different levels, I think. But I, I don't think that this was the sort of um, main shortcoming in our response. But the problem um, that I talk a lot about in the book was around the diagnostic test where you know, CDC really tried to maintain tight control over the deployment of a diagnostic test for COVID and was resistant to turning to private industry, was resistant to helping facilitate uh, private companies from developing their own tests for a very long time. And FDA was pushing in that direction while CDC was uh, was resisting. And so it was FDA ultimately that um, turned to a contract manufacturer and helped stand them up to develop a diagnostic test that could be mass deployed. Most people think that the testing shortage was resolved when CDC eventually got their test working. It was actually resolved when a private contractor entered the market um, through the work of FDA, which was working with that contractor to get them into the market. Uh, but it, the, the issue is more, less about it, a rivalry or challenges between um, FDA and CDC and, and more an issue of CDC's sort of cultural uh, orientation with respect to testing in a setting of a crisis where they they wanted to maintain tight control over it, where they sort of envisioned themselves as designing the test, developing it, manufacturing it, deploying it, and didn't see a role for turning to private industries to scale that response early on. That's what needs to change. You know, it, it sounds like it's a bad news book, but you do cite a couple of pieces of good news. Uh, one, the the very ability to get a uh, vaccine up and and available within a very abbreviated based on history time frame um possibly because it's it, it's a new form of vaccine and the other is the ability to do genomic sequencing of um occurrences to be able to track the um mutational history of the of the virus going forward. Talk a little bit about both of those um, pieces of good news, if you would. Well, look, we, we were at a point in technology where we were able to develop vaccine constructs fully, using fully synthetic um, tools that allowed us to pivot to the development of a vaccine very quickly based just off the sequence data of this virus. So if this was three, three years ago, five years ago, we would have made a vaccine by growing up, taking the virus, um, putting it in a cell culture, growing it in massive quantities, uh, inactivating it, cleaving off its surface proteins and using those proteins and putting them in a syringe. And that would be the vaccine. And that's how we make flu vaccine. We, we grow the virus in chicken eggs and then we, we isolate the virus, we inactivate it and we use its proteins as part of the vaccine. What we were able to do here was take the genetic sequence of that protein, the spike protein that sits on the surface of the coronavirus, put it, you know, put it in a, in a a strip of mRNA that just codes for production of that protein and use that as the vaccine construct. And that allowed us to pivot to a vaccine construct very quickly uh, and then get it into clinical development. Now, the clinical development was the traditional approach to clinical trials. These were the largest clinical trials ever run really in modern history. But we were able to get that vaccine construct um, very quickly. And that owed to a technological inflection point we were at where these kinds of approaches were becoming available and about to be mainstreamed. If this was five years from now, this this synthetic approach would have been commonplace. If this was five years ago, we would never have been able to do this. We were just straddling that line where these tools were becoming available and allowed us to pivot very quickly. And then from a sort of policy standpoint, I think we recognized the shortcomings in our early response where we couldn't really marry these the high science aptitude of CDC with 
with an operational capacity to mobilize a, a national response because we didn't have the right kind of agency and construct to do that. And when it came to the vaccine, we said, you know what, we're going to need to marry the high science aptitude of NIH, National Institutes of Health, with the regulatory prowess of FDA, with the operational capacity of the Department of Defense to actually mobilize the manufacturing and distribution of a vaccine. And that's that was Operation Warp Speed. Operation Warp Speed was a new entity created that married the Department of Defense with the Department of Health and Human Services. So we finally realized it took something different um, when it came to the when it came to the vaccines. And I think it was part of recognition that we lacked that kind of, um, you know, alignment early on. And we needed it if we were going to accelerate a vaccine to the market. We're, uh, we're talking uh, on a day when the FDA is trying is is meeting, despite some technical good difficulties that I saw, uh, to decide uh, whether to uh, advise the uh, onset of booster shots for those who've already been vaccinated, and both the WHO and and some folks inside the FDA have uh, expressed an opinion that it's a little premature to be boosterizing uh, Americans when there are so many people around the world who have not yet had their first dose. Um, how do you come down on that? Look, I think that the, the debate, the, the issue of the um, boosting people here or, or in Western countries, obviously the UK is boosting their population, their older population. The French have decided to do it. The Israelis have already deployed it. I think the issue of is this a zero-sum game and a vaccine used here isn't a vaccine used abroad? I don't think that that's um, the case. Uh, you know, the, the reality is that we are going to soon have much more supply than we can distribute. Um, over the next 12 months, there probably will be 15 billion doses of vaccine manufactured. Mm. If you aggregate, you know, Pfizer has said they'll make 4 billion. I'm on the board of Pfizer, as you know. Moderna mm -hmm. said they'll make 3 billion. AstraZeneca is going to make billions. J&J &J will make billions. Snopey is going to enter the market, I believe, and they'll be able to manufacture billions. The Serum Institute in India is going to be able to manufacture billions. The Chinese are making billions of doses of their vaccine, as are the Russians. So there's going to be, you know, 10 to 20 billion doses of vaccine available. We've already distributed 5.8 billion uh, around the world. There's only 7.8 billion people in the world. So it's going to become an issue of getting vaccine into the austere, hard to reach settings. That's not going to be a supply question. It's going to be a distribution question. Mm. So the idea that we, we might use 50 million doses here in the U.S. to, you know, give a booster to our population over the age of 60, and that's somehow going to strain the global supply. I, I just don't see that being the case. And the reality is that the the doses that the U.S. has already bought. So the Biden administration has already bought 200 million extra doses from Pfizer, 200 million extra doses from Moderna. Those doses aren't going to be distributed globally. The Biden administration is going to hold on to enough vaccine to revaccinate re the entire population as a matter of national security, because you don't know what you don't know. And should some new variant come along, we have to quickly re-inoculate the population. They're going to want to have the vaccine available to do that. So these doses aren't going to go anywhere. They're going to be used in the U.S. or just stockpiled in the U.S. So I don't think it's a zero-sum game. Now, where there's another debate going on is among the public health crowd, which is, um, are the vaccine, is a booster necessary? And and that turns on a question for some people of, is the vaccine still fulfilling its original premise in terms of protecting against hospitalization and severe disease, or do we see a decline in its ability to fulfill that that promise. We know there's a decline in, in the protection against infection. We see that and people accept that. But is it still protecting people against severe disease and hospitalization? And should we revaccinate the population just to 
boost their protection against uh, asymptomatic transmission or mild infection. And that's kind of where the public health debate is. Now, I think where I come out on that is when you look at the data, you do see a decline in protection among older individuals who were vaccinated a long interval ago, not just in protection against um, infection and not just protection against mild infection, but also symptomatic disease. And if you look at the Israeli data, there are some data sets that show a decline in protection against severe disease. And that's what's more concerning and points in the direction of maybe we should be providing uh, an additional dose to some portion of the population based on their risk. And that might include people above the age of 60 who were vaccinated more than six months ago. I think that that's that may be an appropriate place for us to come out here, even if some people maintain and feel that the evidence isn't there to support giving a booster to everyone. I think the evidence is more convincing when you're starting to look at older individuals who were vaccinated a long interval ago. Certainly the Israeli data set points in that direction. Um, The problem is we don't have our own data set and the CDC isn't systematically collecting this data. So we could say that we don't fully trust the Israeli data. The Israeli data doesn't fully inform the experience in the US, but we don't have our own data to say that it's wrong. And it is being collected pretty rigorously. Should I ask why we don't have our own data? Well, because the CDC isn't collecting it. The CDC made a decision not to collect data on breakthrough infections, except when people are hospitalized. And the data set that they're relying on are these cohort studies that they have where they're following tens of thousands of patients, but not hundreds of thousands from defined groups. So, for example, they have a cohort study of you know grocery store workers. They have a cohort study of of healthcare providers. And what they do is they follow these pay- people over per- in perpetuity over time, and they're examining whether they're seeing breakthrough infections, breakthrough hospitalizations. But the problem is that these aren't um, representative groups. First of all, they're not geographically diverse. Mm-hmm. So you have an epidemic in Florida. And your cohort study might over enroll people in New York where there's very low incidence of Delta right now. And the other problem is that you're you're following groups that have a high prevalence of prior infections. So grocery store workers, we know, had a higher incidence of early infection. So then if you take a group that had covid, then you vaccinate them. Suddenly they have more immunity than the average person who might have just been vaccinated and never had the infection. Mm -hmm. So that's no longer a representative uh, sample to derive conclusions for the broad population. So we're not collecting the right data to answer this question because, you know, when CDC started doing this, they never envisioned having to answer this question. Um, So they never collect the data in a systematic way to really, really be in a position to do it. Two things I have to ask you about, because anytime the subject of COVID comes up, they, they come up. Uh, and one you you do cover in the book uh, in some detail is China and the role of China and the behavior of China. Um, we at this point, do we know how this uh, pandemic originated and where? We don't, and we might never know. Um, you know, there's this might be a battle of competing narratives over time. Um, there's a group that thinks it's more likely that this came out of nature, that this was a sort of zoonotic uh, source. Some animal was in the wrong place at the wrong time, transferred this virus to people, and that triggered a, a, a global pandemic. And there's people who are um, who believe this more likely came out of a laboratory where there was an accident in a laboratory in China that was working with this virus. And um, 
it ended up escaping from a lab. And there's certainly past precedent for viruses escaping out of laboratories, even triggering global epidemics. Um, SARS-1 escaped out of laboratories six different times. The six last known outbreaks of SARS-1 were all laboratory accidents, mm. uh, four of which were in were in China. So I think that the the challenge is that over time, the side of the ledger that says that this came out of nature hasn't really expanded and you can argue has diminished because we've disproven the the food market that was originally implicated as the source of the initial outbreak. We Even the Chinese concede that wasn't the case. It was just a stop along the way. And we've conducted a pretty exhaustive search for a zoonotic source and haven't found it. Um, so, you know, that has to tip in, in the direction of maybe this didn't come out of nature. Um, the side of the ledger that says that this came out of a lab, that side of the ledger has expanded over time. First of all, we have some intelligence reporting that's been made public around some uh, circumstances around that lab that created the conditions for spread. They were doing experiments with novel coronaviruses. They were infecting transgenic animals, animals with fully human immune systems. That certainly creates risk. They were doing the research in what's called a BSL-2 lab, a lab that didn't have high security. Um, so those all create opportunities for risk. We, the Chinese government hasn't been forthcoming with information uh, about this. And so that certainly has to tip in, in in the direction of a laboratory source. Why why aren't they more forthcoming? Why are they why why haven't they been more um, open to a, a thorough investigation? Uh, so there's just things that have sort of accumulated on the side of the ledger that this that that suggests that this could have come out of a lab that I think is changing some minds over time around the relative uh, merits of both arguments. But the bottom line is we might never have an answer to this question. It's either going to take finding the zoonotic source, finding the animal source, which we haven't done yet, or perhaps a whistleblower or someone someone who leaks out information from China that clearly points in the direction of a lab. I think absent that, this may persist as one of those intrigues that that carries on for some time. Good luck to that person. Um, the, the other uh, <laughs> thing that that comes to people's minds when we start digging into this subject is the structure that's known in this country as big pharma and uh it it did not escape my notice that the and, and probably did not escape yours either that the stock price of moderna the uh one of the other companies manufacturing a a um, vaccine has gone up 360 percent in like the past year or so um is there profiteering going on and is and what's i guess a a preliminary question is the difference between profiting and profiteering yeah i mean look uh, um i don't i don't know how to answer that question because i don't know what you would define as profiting versus profiteering mm -hmm. uh, you know my my definition might be different than someone else's definition but i would i would look at what is the price being charged for the vaccines and do we think it's a fair price relative to the, you know, cost and risk of developing it and the benefits that it's it's delivering? And in Western markets, the vaccine has been priced sort of commensurate with the flu vaccine. And in in developing markets, it's being um, priced much lower. And in um, some markets it's being given away for a no profit price. So you know, different people are going to come to different conclusions. Some people will say, well, you know, the COVID vaccine is delivering a, an immense amount of public health value. Um, 
you know, pricing it on the level of the flu vaccine is appropriate. And some people will argue it should be given away free everywhere around the world. I mean, the reality is, you know, and I'm on the board of Pfizer, so mm -hmm. I'm close to, to this. The reality is there are um, the cost of goods are not trivial here. This isn't like it, it only costs a penny to make. Mm -hmm. um, so the cost of goods are substantial, even relative to the total price of the vaccine. And there's been a lot of reinvestment. Um, you know, every company is working on multiple new variant vaccines. Every company is is investing billions of dollars in manufacturing. Um, and so we want to continue to see those investments go forward because there's continued risk. I mean, just anecdotally, from my experience, I'm on the board of Pfizer. Mm -hmm. I remember the board meeting when we voted for about a we on a, about a half a billion dollars to spend about a half a billion dollars to purchase the machines that are used to make the vaccine. There's these mi mixing machines that are used that are custom made for Pfizer. They cost two hundred million dollars each, mm. and we voted to purchase I think four of them. Uh, early on, this was this was probably in the springtime or maybe the summer before we even knew if the vaccine was going to work. Uh, so we made that investment early. And, you know, there's been billions of dollars invested in just the purchase of those those machines, because as the company has been able to scale its manufacturing to make these these four billion doses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those those kinds of investments, um, that's a lot of risk. And there needs to be some return for taking that risk. Finally, uh, the. The, the uh, last chapters of your book bring up a, a subject that I think um, is probably the most controversial element that you discuss in the book, which is the need looking forward to prevent uh, a similar experience with the next pandemic. And we all know that there's going to be a next pandemic. Um, you recommend bringing in uh, the intelligence community um to participate in um, the detection of um, signs of an incipient next pandemic. And the, the specter of mixing public health and intelligence can give people eight kinds of creeps. Yeah, I, I think that um, the public health community has historically not wanted the foreign intelligence assets anywhere near this mission, that they saw the mission of trying to find the next emerging virus that could create the next pandemic as something that was purely public health mm -hmm. and that any um, involvement of our foreign intelligence agencies would erode the sort of multilateral work and the capacity building that needs to go on where, you know, our public health officials need to be in these countries and have cooperation um, to get the information we need to protect ourselves. And the reality is that those multilateral commitments have failed time and time again. Uh, you know, every time there's been a major outbreak, uh, we've seen most times countries weren't forthcoming with the information, uh, including China with SARS-1, where it wasn't revealed that they were having an outbreak of a novel coronavirus until people in Toronto, Canada started to get infected and the Canadians sequenced the virus and realized it was a novel coronavirus. And then the, the Chinese government conceded that it wasn't a fungal infection causing their outbreaks of pneumonia, which was their holding story up until that point, but actually a novel coronavirus. So I don't know that we have the luxury to just think that we could go to the World Health Assembly, the World Health Organization, sign some new binding agreements, hold hands and, and really mean it this time. I think we're going to need to build different capacities to gather this information overseas. And, and if anything, COVID conditioned countries to be even less forthcoming because it normalized trade and travel restrictions. At one time, it was taboo the idea that you would uh, isolate a country that had an emerging infection, that had an outbreak and an epidemic was 
taboo. It was, you know, it would be destabilizing, it would actually hurt the nation and hurt their ability to contain the epidemic. That certainly was the case when you had the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and there was calls for isolating the West African nations and, and the Obama administration rightly resisted those calls. But if anything, COVID now normalized those practices. What's the first thing that happened when the British raised their hand and said, we have this concerning new variant called B117 that seems to be a lot more contagious? The French closed the channel. So <laughs> if anything, we now we should now expect com- countries, especially countries that aren't necessarily friendly to us to be even less forthcoming and more likely to try to deal with it on their own quietly before they raise their hand and say, you know, we have this problem here. And that's going to argue more in the direction of getting our foreign intelligence agencies engaged in this mission. So I think we need to come to a consensus around that and get comfort around it, because I think it's it's sort of the bitter reality coming out of COVID. Aren't there people in the public health community who are afraid that 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 means they're going to be fingered by those in other countries as probable CIA uh, or NSA agents and um, make their jobs, if not their lives, a little harder? Yes, that's a, that's absolutely the argument that everyone with a white coat will be perceived to be a spy. And that's why there's been resistance from the public health crowd. But I think that, you know, having sort of been in the government for a while and I, I think that when Americans travel abroad, most foreign countries suspect that uh, any American official traveling abroad might be working on behalf of a foreign intelligence agency. Um, so I, I don't know that there's not already uh, some suspicion just because countries are naturally suspicious of American officials traveling abroad. So um, the you're well, right that this is going to further strain that, though. The well has been poisoned is what you're saying. Exactly. Um, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, it's an amazing book um, and touches on so much that uh, has been um, obsessing us in the last year and a half and clarifies a lot of it. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And now, the Apologies of the Week. First, here's Marine Corps General Frank McKenzie, head of CENTCOM, about the drone attack in Afghanistan that killed 10 people. I am now convinced that as many as 10 civilians, including up to seven children, were tragically killed in that strike. Moreover, we now assess that it is unlikely that the vehicle and those who died were associated with ISIS-K or were a direct threat to U.S. forces. I offer my profound condolences to the family and friends of those who were killed. This strike was taken in the earnest belief that it would prevent an imminent threat to our forces and the evacuees at the airport. But it was a mistake, and I offer my sincere apology. As the combatant commander, I am fully responsible for this strike and this tragic outcome. So then he'll be paying the um, compensation, right? And here's the director of the FBI speaking to four of the gymnasts abused by U.S. gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser at a hearing Deeply this week. And, and profoundly sorry to each and every one of you. I'm sorry for what you and your families have been through. Uh, I'm sorry that so many different people let you down over and over again. And I'm especially sorry that there were people at the FBI who had their own chance to stop this monster back in 2015 and failed. And that is inexcusable, 
It never should have happened, and we're doing everything in our power to make sure it never happens again. Chris Ray. And finally, the organizers of the Brighton Marathon in southern England have apologized after the course for last Sunday's race turned out to be 1,640 feet too long. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this edition of the show. There will be more, but different, next week, same time, on these same radio stations and on your audio device of choice, whenever you want it. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Or do. It's up to you. And it would be just like having the marathon course the right length, if you'd agree to be with me then. Would you already thank you very much, a uh-huh, tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Man, there's a throwback. And the uh, playlist of the music here, all at harryshear.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.